My name is Joel Finkelstein, and I'm the director of the Network Contagion Research Institute. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. So Joel, uh, you and I met two and a half years ago or so out at Princeton, and you had this whole presentation, you had a couple of your colleagues there. (laughs) And I remember thinking, wow, so here's somebody who's really bringing an interesting and and unique perspective to the fight against anti-Semitism and extremism. I mean, first question is, do you remember that first time that we met? That was unforgettable. (laughs) (laughs) It was like lightning striking. We, we had been, I think, banging our heads against how to look at this phenomena at a large scale. Um, and I remember, you know, at, at the time, I think, as I admit, I was, in gra- I was in my graduate program in neuroscience and really working with people in physics and computer engineers. And we had gotten together to sort of try and understand this problem just because we were worried about friends of ours who were becoming increasingly erratic around the time of 2016. Mm. And by the time 2018 rolled around, we had compiled massive amounts of data on extremist communities, and we were we were using our training to be able to try and understand those things. So we hadn't really talked to a lot of people who were topic experts in the field. So by the time we reached you, you were like, wait a minute, this is, let me, let me explain what this is. And it, it was it was sort of like, like the lights went on. We were like, oh. i remember though too that even at that that first meeting you had some ideas about not only the sort of viral nature of of this hatred obviously the the concept of it being viral is is not totally new but the way you were able to show it and understand it i think was was particularly interesting yeah well i think you're you're kind of going for the keys of the kingdom here that 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 really when when it comes to understanding what's happening in social media and and we have to and the spread of hate especially and the spread of anti-semitism we have to understand it from the standpoint of network contagion to make sense of it mm-hmm. so i'm going to back up and see if we can if we can kind of bring that framework of understanding into the conversation because i think this is so useful for the extremist research community to really be able to wrap their heads around one of the one of the way, the lens in which we need to see this is is through a kind of evolutionary or or uh, epidemiological lens. And and really the reason that's true is because when we're communicating in this new media, like I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a hashtag, imagine that I'm a hashtag, right? And I need people to pay attention to me. Now, how am I gonna do this? You know, it used to be that if I were a hashtag and before the internet existed, I would have to get from Sally to Joe who lived in their own institutions with buffers of friends around them and the information that got through was only the most selling information because we only have so much time in the day to talk to each other. Mm. And how often do we talk to people all across the universe at the speed of light? Like, that, that never happens. So the result is that you have this kind of institutional inertia that was set inside the functioning of, of, of dense networks that were interacting with each other. Right Now, what happened with the, with the invention of the internet was that those walls just came tumbling down. And what you had was everyone speaking to the entire universe all at once. Now, that is a totally different way for information to travel. And when that happens, it lends itself to something called network contagion. 
the ability for bits of information to travel really, really rapidly and create ad hoc networks really fast. And, and, and you know, what, what happens when you have a, a, a wide open array like that is that you get contagions that can run across it really quickly. Now, how would they do that? Right. Let's so again go back to the metaphor. I'm a hashtag. How would I get really popular? And you know the answer is in a medium like that, the loudest and most sensational material is what's going to win. Mm -hmm. And it, and if I'm if and if I'm a hashtag, what here's here's what I need you to do. I need you to identify with me. I need you to feel very powerful emotions about me as a hashtag. The best way to do that. There's a few good ways to do that that are really reliable historically. One of the best is to convince you that you have grievances based on some ways in which you've been oppressed, because that's going to create a group that you can identify with. Then I need to I need to really weigh into that. And I need to, I need to shoulder right into that feeling by, by gripping you and saying that you're under threat. That raises your anxiety. Then you look for people who are just like you. And the best thing of all about this hashtag is that the people who, who act in the name of it are acting in a distributed fashion. These are distributed networks that permit diffusion of responsibility. So when they act, they have the benefit of nobody, unlike the traditional institutions that they eroded, no one's responsible. Was there this insight previously because, you know, you had a PhD in psychology? Well, I did my PhD in psychology and, uh, and I was studying the neuroscience of addiction um, and social behavior. And what I was doing was trying to understand how the brain learns uh, and how addiction feeds into that. And I was doing that both in real world environments, but also in virtual ones. Mm. I mean, we would put animals into virtual reality in order to control their minds with laser beams and understand how, how networks by controlling virtual environments, we could see how learning occurred through, you know, through dopamine, literally looking at dopamine neurons and imaging them while we put animals into virtual reality. Using laser beams on animals will be the topic of another podcast. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really, if, if you think about the parallels, you know, the, it, it maps, right? Like we're looking at virtual reality. We're looking at addictive behavior and learning in a network. A lot of the same principles apply. Um, and I think we, there's, a, there, there's a lot in terms of how information gets encoded within these networks. And we see that with the hashtags, for example, you have a lot of dense symbolic encoding that occurs in these hashtags in order to create these kinds of internal languages, Right. And that creates privation of information. It creates the capacity for for the feeling of being bought into into a secret that, on the one hand, everyone sees, but you have inside information to, mm. right? So a lot, the result is that the code words are the, are being selected for because of network contagion, right? That you have you have effects where groups seize on to meaning systems. They, they they create a little bit of encoding in those meaning systems, and then all of a sudden you have these, the, the growth of code words. Well, the code words that, that therefore the code words, when you really unpack them, contain entire programs. They contain the, what what's behind them are entire kind of viruses that have instructions, that have that have narratives, that have myths. And when we trace the code words, it's like tracing viral particles. We can see we can see something unfolding almost like in a fractal nature across the different layers of the network, right? And it's all densely folded up into the symbols, it's densely folded up into the hashtags. And in fact, it spreads just like a contagion. This is a good opportunity to look at um, one of the latest reports that you and, and your team released on anti-Semitic disinformation. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I it, it's such a, anti-Semitism is such a, such a hard topic to wrap your head around. I mean, it, of all the things we study, I would argue, of all the hates we study, 
it is the most complex. And I, and I mean that technically. It literally has more dimensions than the other hates do. Hmm. Um, and that's evolved, right? And, and that makes sense because anti-Semitism has been around for such a long time. You know, so it's had a chance to evolve as a form of hate. Actually, in that sense, what I would say, Oren, is that anti-Semitism is, from a technical standpoint, appears to me to be the deepest form of structural hatred. Hmm. What makes you come to that conclusion? Why is it structurally so much more complex? What do you mean by that? If I were to invent the enemy, here's how I would invent the enemy. I would say that this is an enemy who, first of all, needs to be very durable. Not not brutish or stupid. This guy needs to be really, like, he needs to be able to hide in plain sight. That would be ideal, because then he'll never go away. And I can blame him for anything. So he needs to look just like us. Ideally, he'd be super smart. In fact, he'd be devious. Um, you know, what would be great is if he were genocidal. And if he were out to sort of do something like, I don't know, conquer the world. But that's not really romantic enough for me to hate him accurately. To really hate this person, he'd have to be up to something really creepy, like like invasion of the body snatchers creepy. He'd have <laughs> to be out to replace me. That would be super creepy. Man, that's like paranoia, just like burning. Now, the best thing of all would be if if this person who is pretending to be just like me, who I can never get rid of, who's actually really durable, sinister, genocidal, and seeking to replace me, the best thing of all would be if he was actually in reality kind of vulnerable. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the more complex the perceived enemy is, um, the more teeth the conspiracy will have, the more it will animate people to want to act on it. Is that accurate? Well, that's sort of accurate. What it means is that the like that what it means is that the the more the, the hatred becomes more nuanced and complex because its subject is actually anti-fragile. Its subject is actually stable, mm. right? And so the result is that it's reliable. It can evolve. And so the Reichs and the communists and like the, these these kinds of vast empire building like projects, they needed the Jew. And the Jew is at the founding component of many of their founding myths. Mm. So, the, so anti-Semitism is so structural, it's so deep, it's so complex, and and really the thing that's really like mind blowing about it. And I, I know we've gotten kind of philosophical, so we should kind of get back to the, the findings here. But I feel like this is—I don't get a chance to talk about this very often. Um, so I'll say this about anti-Semitism: that like it, in that sense, the dirty secret about anti-Semitism is that it's the study of non-Jews. And their moral failings. Hmm. That that's really what it is. Are you saying it's more about what non-Jews are ascribing to Jews to learn more about sort of their perception rather than just sort of base hatred? No, it's even worse than that. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that those motivations are projection. Let's take the Nazis, for example, who said the Jews were genocidal, that they were, you know, trying to replace us and they're involved in ethnic cleansing and they wanted to secretly dominate the world. Is that what the Jews were up to, Nazis? Is that what they were up to? <laughs> right? right? right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right? And, then, and that's not, and that's like par for the course. You know, the communists kind of get a pass for this, but they did the exact same thing with Zionism, right? Mm. That, they're, that the nation state is out to get us, and there's one nation state in particular that is worth demonizing as a racist, you know, as a racist exemplar of moral failing. Okay, so so we've we've hit on some of the psychology behind anti-Semitism. Then there's the actual report, and what what is it exactly that that you found examining you know millions of comments? 
Okay, fine. So you're so this is really important, right? Like now let's take this out of the philosophical. How does this get us to bedrock? The insights that I'm describing come from an from an analysis of these kinds of topic networks. And what what we do is we look at the use of these conspiracies across multiple communities, both extremist web communities and large scale communities like Twitter that are, are kind of seen as more mainstream. Um, and so the 4chan's, the Gabs, and 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 the Reddit's, the Donald. We look at these communities um, across hundreds of millions of comments. Um, and what we're doing is we look at at how anti-Semitic disinformation, which which comes out of an analysis of anti-Semitism, that the there there are these features within anti-Semitism, the kind of themes we talked about: genocidal bloodlust, covert dominance, um, replacement. These these themes represent stable themes inside of anti-Semitism across all of its different characterizations and all of its different versions and across different polls. So there are words like Soros or you know Trump with triple parentheses that convey those myths. Soros, you know, in the deep state is the idea that there are Jewish internationalists who are who are in a plot for secret dominance and genocide often. And who are seeking to take over nations from the inside out, um, and in that characterization, the Jew is like the stranger who's who's uh, who is insidiously trying to undermine the integrity of nations and their racial purity, often through white genocide, uh, is is the or white replacement. They're trying to replace white people with people of color or themselves, depending on the variant of the myth. Mm -hmm. um, so. We can look at a term like that and, and take its topic network, and we can look at the most frequent, uh, frequently used viral particles, so to speak, the, the components of the, the anti-Semitic disinformation components within that network. And we can look at their frequency across these different communities. So now we're taking that net, the net of meaning. We can, we can kind of put a circle around that and say, okay, you know, how, how and when is that deployed? Now that we have these code words that come out of this, Deep state, you know, Illuminati with triple parentheses, whatever it is, we, we, you know, we know what it means. So now let's see when it's used. So the when gets us to the blueprint. The when shows us when this activity happens. When we do the frequency analysis, after we do the topic modeling, we do frequency analysis and timeline analysis. This stuff doesn't just ramp up. I mean, it does, but really it shows up all at once, like seismic activity, anti Semitic disinformation is showing up in these communities like seismic activity around the fracture points in our democracy, around the times of elections, around inaugurations, around the, when, when public health crises emerge. We see reliable recruitment of anti-Semitic disinformation, and we see it by these extremist communities. But in, in, in what's really troubling about the report is we're also seeing it at the same time deployed by state actors. So there are four... Um online platforms that you're looking at for this report gab um 4chan is that correct what are the other two reddit's the donald so we don't look at reddit in okay. its entirety although we certainly could but we're looking at the extremist community the donald uh, on reddit um which is which uh, really was a, a kind of as you know something that that was a, an attractor for white supremacy for a long time on the site um and then finally we're also looking at twitter as a mainstream community to sort of get a, a kind of more mainstream sample along with these kinds of extremist communities got it so essentially the the four communities uh 4chan uh the donald subreddit gab and then also twitter i mean three out of four are very much known for their their hatred and extremism 
But when you're looking at sort of the Soros conspiracy, how how did you and, and your team sort of decide, all right, this is actually the anti-Semitic usage of the Soros conspiracy versus somebody who's sort of commenting on it and rejecting it or, you know, irony or, you know, something less sort of loaded. Like how, how are how are your tools making those decisions, if you will? So in principle, so in principle, the, the goal of the research isn't to say this is all anti-Semitic. It's to say this shows the transmission of anti-Semitic disinformation. This is when it emerges. We're not we're not taking statement by statement and saying this is anti-Semitic disinformation. This isn't right. That's that's not the purpose of the study. Mm -hmm. It's not to come up with a principal way of of uh, categorizing uh, at the level of classification what statements are anti-Semitic and what statements aren't. When we look at Soros during this huge, huge eruption right after the death of George Floyd, it's peak Soros, according to our analysis. It's not just that we see the top associations being QAnon and and WWG1 WGA, which is a code word that they use where we go one, we go all, you know, which is a notoriously anti-Semitic conspiracy group. It's not just that we see that those are the top code words associated with Soros. The other hashtags associated with Soros are traitor, antifa terrorist. Right? He's sparking an inside revolution. These are the most closely associated hashtags with that acute increase in its use, a tenfold increase. Mm -hmm. What else could this be? We don't know what the signal is in fine detail. So, you know, during an election or during a pandemic or during protests, one of your findings was that's when you tend to see, you know, anti-Semitism online increase. So it's not just that, you know, mentions of 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 ideas or narratives that are often exploited by anti-Semites increase during those moments. But it's right, the it's actual words around them and connected narratives that exactly. are increasingly anti-Semitic. Exactly. And so that's why we call it that's anti-Semitic disinformation. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that it's being used to systematically attack the pillars of our democracy at moments of critical vulnerability. The, and it's being used by extremists and seditionist groups that seize the moment to use anti-Semitism in order to organize and create and, 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 and spike the punch for the grievance groups they're seeking to organize. So the idea is that like we can see anti-Semitic disinformation being mobilized by these extremist groups and not just against Soros, also against Israel and also against Trump. And when they mobilize it against Israel and Trump, we see a very interesting difference which is that when you have internal instability, when you have social justice riots or a public health crisis, when you have things that are problematic from within, then the Jew that's called on is the deep state. That's the anti-Semitic disinformation that's used. There's some enemy from within that we have to organize against. Mm. However, when you see a foreign intervention, like the attack against Syria by the Trump administration or the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, the Israel, Israel or the Zionist occupied government, Zog, is controlling the Jewish state from the outside, right? So the nation then becomes – the Jewish nation becomes the object of suspect. But the interesting thing is that all of the themes, dominance, control, bloodlust, they're the exact same themes show up in both cases. I mean it's always been neither left nor right. You know, It's yeah. always been something that can be used by anyone to conform to their worldview, and we're just seeing that – you know, now just in, in real time and at massive volume on these platforms. Well, and they're ridiculously parallel. So let's take the white genocide myth. If I take the white genocide myth, it's the idea that Jews are committing genocide. They're ethnically replacing white people 
they're creating a threat from within to ethically create to ethically replace white people with people of color. Um, and they're doing that as a seditionist, as, as a force that's that is uh, that is breaking the the world from the inside out. Now, if I invert that, then what I have is that Jews are white settler colonials who are replacing ethnic people of color in their homeland as innocent natives. And they're rupturing that from the outside in. Those myths are the same myth in perfect mirror symmetry. Nothing wrong with telling people to be mindful of the way that they use, you know, a certain narrative, especially when we can show that it is often used by people with nefarious purposes. So even if you did not intend, right, one did not intend to, like, raise some, you know, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, like, right. no reason to be ignorant about the fact that many use that same phrase, you know, exactly. in a way that is intended that way. Exactly. And then we can really narrow in on the content instead of the person. Right. Right. And we, and we can say that, like, the problem with what you're saying isn't you. It's that there's anti-Semitic disinformation that these people are attaching onto this in this way. One of the one of the sort of natural questions um, that comes up after a report like this is released is or, or what can we what can we do about it? We do about it, meaning institutions, I think, indiv <laughs> individually. Right. People want to know. You're asking the hard questions. OK, so 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 the question really is, how can we do better? And I think there is an approach that would allow, on the one hand, the ability to create – and I think this is what's missing. We need the ability to create transparency through something like a public trust that, it can, that it can allow us to evaluate what's happening without, with, and, and do that in a way that maintains people's privacy. And so if we have the capacity to create that, then we could have something that could give the, 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 the government regulators a kind of ground truth that they don't have to take the network's word for, along with advice on how to best do that with experts who are in that public trust, who are that a, a civic-driven mission. I'm calling this the Centers for Disinformation Defense, right? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's akin to what we have with something like the CDC. And now the CDC is a terrible institution. Everyone knows it's a terrible institution, but it's the American way. We pull together the government, the, the academy, the private sector, we create a big pool of money and we have these centers that are collaborating and competing to create these kinds of, you know, the, the, a, a slow moving forward consensus against public health problems. That's the way to deal with this. We need something like the Centers for Disinformation Defense. It needs to be driven by science and evidence, and it needs to be able to safely contain data, even private data, in or, and not in order to compete with these companies, but in order to create a means of, 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 uh, detecting emerging threats against democracy that are coming from them. Because otherwise, we're not going to be able to have honest conversations about those. Now, that's there, there are other kinds of innovations that are needed, but it's almost like the uh, framework of international human rights that came after the Holocaust, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's like we've seen the, the this gruesome excess that, that who knew that you could turn the, the, you could turn the pogrom into a factory? Who would have imagined that? Right. That really the, the, the mechanisms of the nation state, the algorithms of the nation state, when they're allowed to become runaway processes, can get out of control. So we need institutional controls that can pull that back. But those institutional controls need to be informed. Is this what you thought you would be doing when yes. you. OK, you you always knew that this was going to be your sort of yeah. life's mission. No. Oh, no, 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 no. I see what you're asking now. No, listen, <laughs> I want I don't want to do this at all. I hate this. <laughs> I hate my job. <laughs> no, you, 
Well, no, I'm serious. Like if I, if I, I was, you know, I was studying neuroscience. I really, what I really want to be doing is honestly, like in 10 years, my goal is to become like a neuroscience, go back to neuroscience and become a rabbi. Like that's my goal. That's mm. really what I want to do. I think I know part of this, but what has kept you doing this? Well, you know, when you and I talked when we first met, like, you know, we, we came out with this report on, uh, on Gab mm -hmm. and we did that and talked about like the white genocide stuff and the growth of these conspiracies and how concerned we were about the mirroring between real world events and, and these kinds of meme yeah. uh, hashtags that we're seeing in these hotbox communities. That was two weeks before the attack in Pittsburgh at the tree of life synagogue. Right. And, you know, after, after that happened, like I realized that like here you have the world's most ancient, reliable form of hatred, like the thing that's used to spike the punch. It's organizing in the world's newest medium and a runaway process that no one's going to understand how to control. This is going to get out of hand. We have the ability to see it. That's really unusual. This is going to be needed. Okay, I'm going to have to put away like studying the brain for a little while. Because this is obviously going to be really, really, really important. And like, if I go and, and I'm not going to be able to forgive myself if I go and like study the brain or whatever, and like, and I could have done something about this. So, Joel, it sounds like you have a sense of duty here. Well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's, I, I, I do feel an obligation to do it, but I also feel like it's like the same. To me, our job is no different than cleaning sewers. Like, it has to be done. Someone has to do this. There is no dignity in it. There's, there's no honor in it, right? This is a shame. What these people are doing is a tragedy. And first and foremost, it's a tragedy to them. It, it's a, it, it dehumanizes them. You know, and, and to come into contact with that day in and day out, listen, we have good reason to do that, just like we have good reason to clean sewers. But it's vulgar compared to what we could be doing. And so, and so one of the things we need to do in, in this field to guard ourselves from that work is to remember that this is really vulgar work that are true. And like, there, there's a reason for doing it. And it's not the, it's not glory. There's no glory in this. The reason for doing it is the simple pleasures that we, that we want to enjoy in our lives, the, the simple dignities that we want to have hmm. peacefully with our family, with Torah, with, with consciousness. So the things we're really here to do. You've chosen to you know, clean the sewers, as you've described it, over studying the brain. Um, so can I ask, like, how do you deal with some of the content that you come across, sort of make sure that you're staying mentally healthy, you know, and, and, and able to continue um, to, to do this? Because some of this is not easy. I, well, first of all, I invert the question. The thing that I do is I focus on the source of my meaning. Um, and the, the, the thing that grounds me in, in a sense, I think of what I would describe as, as a, a kind of inherit, like an inherited tradition of, in, of internal dignity, hmm. right? I, I, that's the focus. Not, it's not this stuff. And that, that is the thing that, that I think offers more than protection. It's like, it allows us to come into contact with this without it really being the point, you know, and that's critical because it isn't. Like dealing with this stuff, like what, what's so important for people who are working on this is to keep focused on on the things that are meaningful and that dignify us in our lives. And it's not this stuff, right? We had better not be defined by by the things we hate. Anti-Semitism 
is a is a key indicator for understanding the structural integrity of our democracy, because it would appear to be a signal about its weakness and relative strength at critical moments. And so we need to be focusing on the democracy, you see. We need to be focusing on, on the values that are under attack, not on the things that are attacking our values. If your average person listening to this wants to, you know, do something, feel like they're part of the solution, you know, they don't have a background like you do in, in neuroscience or, you know, they're not coding or, you know, building scrapers. They're not, they don't have the time to sort of follow extremist movements like we do at ADL. What, what's the one thing that you could, you know, tell people who want to get involved in fighting, you know, hate in some way? Well, I would say start with the meaning in your own life. And because I think part of what we're being sold now on, on and this is on a huge, it's, it's the, the biggest lie of all in all of this is that humans have become obsolete. That's the biggest lie of all. They've never been more important. They've never been, we've never been more needed than we are right now. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think, I think that, that we have to focus on the ways in which we're needed. And there's hygiene approaches that that, that entails in our own life in terms of, you know, what we as individuals do. There's all, just like there, just like with, with Corona, there's hygiene approaches that we can have to this material that we need to learn adoptively in ways that are more normative, right? And each of us as individuals can do that. Limit your time online, like really. There's, unless you're doing something that's instrumental to work or to, 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 to further your understanding. And, and like the, the, the conditions of our time, like the conditions, that, like the time is this resource we have that's like completely invaluable. So when we're turning to sources of meaning, we're spending time turning to sources that, that influence our meaning, that's like the light that, that a little bit of that light repels so much darkness. Um, and like, that's the thing that ultimately wins out against all of this stuff. Sounds like you're saying fighting hate does not have to be an addiction in and of itself. It, it not only that, it's like, if it becomes an addiction, we become defined by the things we hate. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's wrong. Where can people go to learn more about NCRI and, and your work? Yeah, so we you can head to uh, uh, networkcontagion.us, and uh, that will take you to our website. And uh, uh, and you take if you, we have a contact form, feel free to get in contact with us if you're interested in reaching out. Joel, uh, I've appreciated uh, the last couple of years, you know, partnering with you and NCRI on on some reports. I feel like I always learn something new. I always. Uh, hear a little more paranoia, but I also, at the end of the day, um, you know, know that there's, there's sort of hope at the end. And it's great to see, you know, you tackling this issue from your perspective. So just want to say thank you for, for your work. You know, from the very beginning, I, I can immediately sense that like, you and I are like dogs in the same hunt, you know, and, and um, it's, it's such a pleasure to continuously be in touch with you as our work evolves and to, to compare notes like this. And, and uh, I really value our relationship uh, a lot, you know, and, and I me appreciate too. you having me on the show. And, and it's always, always great to, to share these thoughts, you know, especially with you.
ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.